Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of The Mod Pod, where authors from the latest issue of Modern Optometry read you their articles. From the menu, we've selected an appetizer on the ocular complications of tick-borne disease and three dishes from September's main menu on trends and innovations in eye care. Hope you're hungry. I have my pumpkin spice latte and I'm ready to dig in. Ira Syed, clinical associate at Padula Institute of Vision Rehabilitation in Guilford, Connecticut, serves us up an informative piece she co-wrote with William Padula, director of Padula Institute of Vision Rehabilitation, about screening for biomarkers of Lyme-related infection. Lyme disease. Borrelia burgdorferi is an emerging vector-borne infectious disease that is highly prevalent in several U.S. regions, including the Northeast, Upper Midwest, and Northern California. The incidence of Lyme and associated disease has increased in the past two decades with about 25,000 confirmed cases reported annually. However, there are numerous indications that the number of cases is highly underreported. The U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention estimates the actual number of cases may be closer to 300,000 annually. There is no way to know exactly how many people are affected by Lyme-related infection because many are thought to be undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. Lyme disease is delivered by a tick bite that inoculates the host with spirochetes. Lyme disease is a generalized term used for a variety of co-infections such as Bartonella, Babesia, and Ehrlichia. Lyme-related infections or tick-borne infections are more appropriate terms because they describe the condition as an infection, and these terms acknowledge the variety of spirochete infections that are possible from a tick bite. Some more common tick-borne infections include anaplasmosis, Rockies Mountain Spotted Fever, Rickettsia helvetica, Colorado Tick Fever, Urkulosis, and Powassan virus. You're probably wondering what this has to do with optometry. Well, consider this. Tick-borne disease can cause complications, including follicular conjunctivitis, bilateral corneal neuropathy, uveitis, iritis, retinal vasculitis, optic atrophy, and optic disc edema. The infection also affects vision. However, symptoms are often mistaken for other problems associated with functional ocular disorders, balance, movement, and cognition. Many individuals with tick-borne diseases experience difficulty with reading, eye strain, fatigue, intermittent diplopia, loss of comprehension, loss of place while reading, headaches, dizziness, joint pain, blurred vision, photophobia, and discomfort in the neck and the shoulders. The infection can also affect balance and posture. Tick-borne disease may also affect personality and learning ability and cause the onset of food allergies suddenly. Tick-borne diseases can cause dysfunctions within the visual, spatial visual process in the brain. This dysfunction causes interference in the balance between the two visual processes in the brain. The imbalance causes functional vision difficulties such as convergence and accommodative insufficiency. The compromise to the spatial visual process causes the patient's vision to isolate on detail. Reading is no longer fluent. 
instead of the spatial visual process seeing the shape of several words before the higher process sees the letters. The patient begins to see the word as isolated details of letters. This is referred to as focal binding. It produces intensity within the visual process that interferes with comprehension and memory and produces fatigue, headaches, and visual strain. The condition also affects patients in busy and moving environments. The world becomes overwhelming and this produces anxiety and in some cases even panic attacks. The early diagnosis and detection of tick-borne disease remains a challenge because tick-borne disease is considered the great mimicker. It often causes misdirection leading to misdiagnosis. Lack of diagnosis and treatment in the acute phase may result in chronic and even neurological advancement of undiagnosed disease. Case example of a 12-year-old girl who was referred to our clinic for neurooptometric evaluation because of her learning difficulties. Her parents reported delays in developmental milestones. She never crawled as an infant and her speech was also delayed. The patient had difficulties learning and she, when she had started school and she was diagnosed with dyslexia when she was in first grade. She reported having difficulty seeing the board in the class, having headaches and light sensitivity, losing her place while reading, avoiding near tasks in general, having difficulty tolerating busy crowded environments, and having poor balance and coordination. The patient's parents also reported changes in social behavior and personality. She had developed recent food sensitivities in the past two to three years. Her parents said that they had never noticed a suspicious bullseye rash but they stated that the family had always lived in the Northeast region of the U.S. and enjoyed outdoor activities. Because of her struggles in traditional classroom setting, the patient was enrolled in an interactive learning center. Her pediatrician and school had also suggested doing physical therapy, occupational therapy, vestibular therapy to address her developmental delays. Her previous behavioral optometrist had recommended vision therapy due to the diagnosis of convergence and accommodative insufficiency visual symptoms, and learning difficulties. The patient had already completed physical therapy, occupational therapy, vestibular and vision therapy, and neurological reorganization therapy. Some improvements had been noted in her, vision, in, in her learning and functionality, but she was still experiencing learning difficulties and visual fatigue. Little change had been detected in convergence and accommodative insufficiency after vision therapy had already been completed. Upon our evaluation, the patient's entering best corrected visual acuity was 20-20 OU. Extraocular muscles were full in all fields without pain, and her pupils were responsive with no APD. However, pursuit tracking was jerky with fixation losses. The patient had a receded near point of convergence of 6 inches and 10 inches of recovery, reduced stereoacuity of 140 seconds of arc on random dot stereo tests, Saccadic eye movements were reduced. She was unable to complete five rapid horizontal and ver vertical saccadic eye movements. The patient's IOPs, as measured the tonopen, were within normal limits at 11 and 12 millimeters of mercury. The refraction determined a low amount of hyperopia, about one diopter both eyes. Anterior segment findings were unremarkable. Posterior segment examination revealed a 0.25 CD ratio, OU. Close evaluation of the optic nerve had showed an area of ischemia or atrophic changes that resembled a halo appearance around the optic nerve head. This finding is uncommon in the pediatric patient with no ocular disease. 
The disc was flat and distinct, but there was an obvious circumferential discoloration present bilaterally. Pagiline colleagues found that bilateral peripapillary ischemia is correlated statistically with Lyme-related infection. The central retinal artery are, is approximately 50 microns in diameter, and the peripapillary capillary plexus decreases to approximately 15 microns. A spirochete is 15 microns in size and can easily pass through these vessels. However, when spirochetes are attacked by the body's immune system, they form biofilms as means of defense. A biofilm is a collection of microorganisms. The spirochete embeds itself within the structure to avoid attack by the body's immune response. These biofilms are much larger than the spirochete. Although they pass through the larger central artery with no difficulty, it is suggested that they may be a cause of blockage in the small, small peripapillary plexus surrounding the optic nerve, thereby causing peripapillary ischemia. OCT angiography was performed to evaluate the nerve fiber layer and the optic nerve and the patient's blood vessel density. Results demonstrated a slight asymmetry between the right and left eyes, although the findings were, were not indicating significant deterioration of vessels. They may have been a pattern of reduction in retinal nerve fiber layer thickness, but at the, that time the findings were inconclusive. A previous study using visual evoked potentials demonstrated the patients with active tick-borne infections have an increased negative amplitude for the N75, more than negative 5 microvolts. This increased amplitude of the N75 is correlated with increased symptoms related to binocular vision dysfunction and peripapillary ischemia. It was found that patients with potential active tick-borne diseases demonstrated a significantly higher amplitude for the N75 compared to healthy patients. The study authors concluded that the N75 is a biomarker that can be used to screen for tick-borne infections. A binocular VEP was also performed for the 12-year-old girl to evaluate the amplitude of the N75, which was found to be negative 12 microvolts. This was a positive test for screening for potential tick-borne infection. Further testing using prisms to affect the compromised spatial visual process was also performed. The binocular P100 can be used to rule out compromise of the spatial visual process by testing with best corrected visual acuity and then with one to one and a half diopter basin prisms before each eye. If there is a compromise, the prism will support the spatial visual process, producing an increase in the P100 and a decrease in amplitude of the N75. This provides the differential diagnosis for a spatial visual processing dysfunction called post-trauma vision syndrome, PTVS, and demonstrates effective change by the prism to be considered for prescription. The VEP binocular pattern reversal N75 is an effective biomarker for screening Lyme-related disease. The amplitude of the N75 is sensitive to disruption of compromise of the spatial visual process delivered by the magnocellular system. The increased N75 amplitudes were found, was found to be statistically significant in the experimental group, but diagnosed with tick-borne infection compared to the controls. The patient was also diagnosed with a spatial visual processing dysfunction with binocular vision dysfunction based on the VEP findings. Based on the biomarkers of peripapillary ischemia, a significant N75 amplitude on the VEP 
persistent visual symptoms, and binocular characteristics, it was decided to perform testing to rule out tick-borne infection. The patient was provided a blood collection kit along with orders to test immunoglobulin G and immunoglobulin M. Results from Igenix testing demonstrated positive results for Borrelia burgdorferi, Babesia, and Bartonella co-infections. It was concluded that the undiagnosed tick-borne disease had caused a spatial visual processes dysfunction that underscored the patient's binocular vision characteristics of convergence and accommodative insufficiency, together with additional dysfunctions with pursuits and saccadic fixations. The patient was referred to a Lyme Lickrook physician who started her on a course of multiple antibiotics and supplements. Treatment was also started for spatial visual processing dysfunction with basin prisms in each eye to affect the compromise of the spatial visual process. She was prescribed two separate pairs of prism lenses, one pair for continual wear, yoke prisms to affect vision, posture, and balance, and a neoprism prescription with a low plus power with one and a half diopter basin prisms for prolonged amounts of near work. The patient experienced improvement in convergence and accommodative sufficiency within several weeks. She also reported an improvement in her symptoms and noted a reduction in headaches and light sensitivity. Her, patient, her parents observed improvement in her coordination and balance. Patients with tick-borne infection must be monitored because the spirochetes often embed themselves in tissue within the body. Despite this, no antigens are present in the blood, which can cause a false negative test result because of the immune system will not produce antibodies without antigens. A patient's blood test can be negative, but reactivation of the infection can occur months or even years after the initial infection. Therefore, both vision and blood tests should be performed periodically to ensure systemic and visual health and visual processing efficiency. At the patient's initial progress check, she reported reduced eye strain, improved reading ability, and better balance. Her convergence near point had improved to 4 inches and 7 inches by means of prism lenses affecting the spatial visual processing dysfunction. We recommended that she continue with her distance prism lenses full-time and near lenses for prolonged amounts of near work. She was still experiencing difficulties with visual skills, postural alignment, and balance. So we recommended neurovisual postural therapy, NVPT, in conjunction with continued use of the lenses. NVPT is a therapy to address the, special, the spatial visual processing dysfunction in addition to affecting the proprioceptive base of support. The NVPT was provided for 10 visits and a maintenance program was created for the duration of patient's medical treatment. The course of antibiotics was continued for six months and blood tests demonstrated no active infection beyond that point. Sudden onset of visual symptoms in conjunction with binocular dysfunctions, such as convergence and accommodative insufficiency, can be characteristics of tick-borne infections, such as Lyme disease. Biomarkers of peripapillary ischemia and a VEP N75 amplitude greater than negative 5 microvolts can be characteristic of spatial visual processing dysfunction caused by a tick-borne infection. The incorporation of fundus photography, VEP, OCT, and geography can potentially enable early screening to rule out tick-borne infections. This allows proper referral to a physician for medical treatment of Lyme-related disease and provides the clinician the opportunity to address the dysfunction in spatial visual processing through prescription of prism lenses and NVPT. Vision is often affected by the infection. 
Symptoms are often mistaken for other problems associated with functional ocular disorders, balance, movement, and cognition. Due to the prevalence of visual symptoms associated with a tick-borne infection, the optometrist may be the first professional for whom a patient seeks help. Optometrists should be alert to the sudden onset of the symptoms and binocular characteristics of Lyme-related infection, infections outlined in the article in order to screen for early diagnosis and appropriate treatment. Feeling creeped out? Well, as we heard, the diagnosis of Lyme-related infection is a challenge because many of its symptoms are shared with other diseases. However, the incorporation of fundus photography, visual evoked potential, OCT angiography, and blood testing can enable early diagnosis of tick-borne infection. We're all done with the bug talk now, promise. It's full steam ahead on the technology and innovation train. Let's give a listen to Jesslyn Quint, optometrist and owner of Smart Eye Care in Augusta, Bangor, and Farmingdale, Maine, as she discusses next-level business technologies. We live in a world in which technology affects every aspect of our lives. All of us use technology, whether it's in the form of an alarm clock as a task manager or for communication, transportation, support, or entertainment. In fact, it's challenging to find an area in life that is technology-free in the modern world. In optometry, we've seen firsthand how technological advancement has positively affected our profession. Diagnostic and treatment technologies enable us to detect ocular pathology sooner than our predecessors could and offer more effective treatments to patients. Through industry publications, continuing education, and industry demos, many of us are aware of the newest tech options available in eye care. But are we as familiar with the technology of the business sector? It behooves optometrists to embrace this area in order to become more efficient entrepreneurs, better leaders, and better communicators. Maximizing the use of business technology in my practice has made my daily life easier and contributed to a significant financial growth. Here, I share a business owner's perspective on a few must-have business technologies to implement in an optometric practice. To put it simply, productivity is about achieving the best output. As productivity increases, a business can turn resources into profits and create a sustainable competitive advantage. It's no secret that using technology to streamline your day can dramatically improve daily productivity. Managing workflow and maximizing communication are key elements in maximizing productivity in the workplace. I co-lead a team of 50 employees, four office managers, an information technology specialist, and a director of operations. Needless to say, there are many moving parts, projects, and people with whom to communicate. With the use of a work management platform, we use monday.com, our team manages daily tasks, plans projects, brainstorms, communicates, and shares files, while virtually keeping tabs on who's working on what, what's been completed, and which tasks are outstanding. This platform integrates well with other software, Outlook, Google, Slack. It has dramatically cut down on emails and meetings and has enhanced the workflow in the office. Although every business is different, essentially everyone can benefit from some form of productivity technology platform to maximize workflow and communication. 
E-commerce has become a colossal part of the economy. It provides a range of opportunities for businesses to generate sales, expand their consumer bases, and connect with customers outside of their brick-and-mortar stores. The pandemic contributed to the exponential growth of e-commerce and sped up consumer acceptance of this business modality. Embracing e-commerce is an easy way for an optometrist to sell more of what they are likely already selling. Although e-commerce will look different for each optometric practice, implementation can be simple and require little financial investment. If you sell dry eye masks, eyelid cleansers, nutritional supplements, eye-friendly cosmetics, or eyewear accessories, you could consider offering those products in an online store, such as Shopify, so that your patients can shop after hours, support their local business, and continue to get the exact products you recommend to them in the exam room. These days, it seems obvious that every business should have a website and a social media presence, yet many practices still do not have these digital basics. After creating a website, a Google business page, and social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, etc., consider taking your digital presence to the next level with social media advertising and influencer marketing. Social media advertising is as simple as posting about the products and services your practice provides. For a small amount of money, you can then boost those posts to reach more consumers or a specific demographic. Short videos in the form of reels are also a current trend on many social platforms. To tap into influencer marketing, consider finding local ambassadors who can promote your business, products, and services in your community or online. Humans connect with humans, and influencer marketing is an effective way to diversify your advertisement portfolio. Managing staff can be the most frustrating part of being a business owner, but doing it well is vital for business success. As your team grows, consider embracing a human resource technology software platform to streamline your onboarding process, track employee salary, compensation, and workplace anniversaries, and manage performance reviews. The human resource technology software I love is Bob. Hi, Bob. This software provides the tools and data needed to make informed compensation and management decisions in a fraction of the time. Bob also allows employees to share hobbies and superpowers and interact with teammates. That connectivity can positively affect company culture and lead to greater employee retention. A patient communication technology can boost operational efficiency in your practice by streamlining patient appointment confirmations and reminders, notifying patients when their glasses or contact lenses are available for pickup, and providing a portal for online scheduling. This type of technology can also enable you to track caller data and to record phone conversations for training purposes. It has the potential to save on manpower and dramatically improve communication with your patients. My practice has used both Solution Reach and Weave Communications. The real-time texting capability and in-office instant messaging these services offer were game changers for our workplace efficiency. The one constant about technology is that it is forever changing. The must-haves of today will likely be the has-beens of tomorrow. I predict that artificial intelligence, blockchain, and robotic automation will likely have big implications in the business categories of technology in the future. These advances will affect our patient relationships, business communication strategies, sales, finances, and the management and recruitment of employees. 
As these technologies continue to change, optometrists should remain open to this evolution in order to stay relevant, efficient, and successful in the business world. Sometimes the technology we implement doesn't work. The beauty of entrepreneurship is having the ability to pivot and try something new or different if and when this happens. Be open to sharing your business technology must-haves with your colleagues. We can all learn from one another, and in doing so, we can promote the profession of optometry to a higher level. Remember, a rising tide raises all ships. Who doesn't love recommendations for the business-minded from someone who's walked the walk? Speaking of which, if you've ever been on the fence about upgrading a device or technology in your practice, this next segment is just for you. Aaron Leck, optometrist and owner at Clearview Eye Center in Roseville, California, explains why it's important to stay at the forefront of eye care technology. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. There's no denying that optometric practice has changed since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, it was changing even before the pandemic. The quantities of data we deal with have multiplied. Our storage and processing have been increasingly moving to the cloud, and patients expect to be able to be seen or managed remotely through telemedicine for interactions that would previously have brought them to our offices. Many practitioners took notice, got in front of this trend, and have invested in new technologies to ensure that their practices were able to adapt to the changing times. The pandemic rewarded those who invested, allowing them to survive and even grow. However, this scenario has also heightened patient expectations. Many patients who come to our offices for the first time, aside from our established patient base, do so because they have heard or read about the technology we use. This can be a good thing, but beware, investment in technology is not an end in itself. Technology must improve care and hopefully pay for itself in order to be a worthwhile acquisition. A technology that looks cool but does not drive outcomes can be a drag on income or profitability rather than a practice booster. A new technology can benefit a practice in several ways. One is by improving patients' interest in their own care. Consider our clinical trial patients who come to us from all over the region. When I demonstrate some of our advanced imaging technologies, an OCT angiogram, OCTA, or an ultra-wide field image, for example, they're blown away because they've never seen the manifestation of their condition in their eyes before. Being able to visualize the impact of their health on their eyes at each follow-up visit helps them remain invested in their eye health and in the trial results and willing to make the long trips needed to stay compliant with trial schedules. Another benefit of some advanced diagnostic technologies is their ability to acquire data remotely and to store and process that data in a cloud environment 
rather than on the device itself. These capabilities have stepped up telehealth services by leaps and bounds. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated this. Diagnostic technologies that allow us to screen patients without risky exposure, upload the results to the cloud, review them remotely, and discuss the findings without the requirement of traditional office appointments, have all helped to increase patient confidence in our services and potentially limited unnecessary exposure. It is also vital that the information we acquire can be shared and integrated with findings across different modalities by different software platforms. The days of siloed technologies and proprietary platforms are, we hope, behind us, and many companies have made significant moves in this direction. It is helpful, for example, to see how a visual field and an OCT tie into one another. Similarly, overlaying a retinal photo with OCTA can give us insights about the relationship between pathology and blood flow. How do you know when it's time to update your technology or bring in new technology? Ask yourself two questions. What does your current patient population look like? If you see, let's say, roughly 3,000 patients a year, and you know that 30% of them are over age 60, roughly 1,000 patients over age 60, that's useful information. You could then further tally the percentage of patients with diabetes, macular degeneration, and dry eye for a good round estimate of what conditions you're treating and how frequently. Now, say you have an OCT unit that's 10 years old. That does not have angiography capabilities. You know that OCTA can give us a real leg up in managing patients with diabetic retinopathy or age-related macular degeneration, particularly in terms of understanding when a patient might be converting from dry to wet, AMD. With patients' best interest at heart, technology available today compels us to invest. These kinds of data, even if they are back-of-the-napkin calculations, can help you figure out whether your patient base justifies updating the technology in question. What specialty do you wish to develop? Given the patient base analysis that you just performed, think about a specialty you might want to develop that you already have a decent baseline for. This allows you to consider making an investment or technology upgrade. If it's an upgrade, consider whether the device will allow data to be exported for deeper analysis or will trap the data on that machine. Demographics aside, decisions made about technology upgrades should always consider the return on investment. Let's say you're building your practice and you are about to hit a sweet spot where you will have really consistent revenue. This is when you have to start thinking about tax implications, such as depreciation and amortization. Because that depreciation acts as an indicator of the real value of the technology asset. Suppose you've made a purchase that allows you to write off $30,000 in depreciation. You are either going to pay a portion of that money in tax to the government, or you could use it to purchase a device that gives you a deduction and potentially boosts revenue. 
That's where having that conversation with your financial advisor is so important. That device and its depreciation essentially can become an asset management account against tax liability. The best clinicians, who are also business people, do a really effective job of understanding how much their estimated tax liability is and when to turn that into a compelling reason to buy something that will benefit the income of the practice. Keeping in mind the 1,000 patient estimate above, a technology that nets $30 per patient would essentially produce $30,000 in profits in year two. You really want to do your tax and purchasing planning in July and August. If you've maintained your financials by July or August, you should know what September through December will generally look like, give or take. You might consider aligning your purchases with the fiscal behavior of the manufacturers. If you know when different companies will have specials or will be pushing sales based on their fiscal calendars, you can plan ahead for purchasing and strike some great deals. When it comes to staying on the cutting edge and embracing new technology, affordability is crucial. You don't want to break the bank and put yourself into a $1,500 or $2,000 a month lease if you won't have the money to spend. But if you can generate enough revenue in the first year or perhaps break even, and you have the potential to do the same the next year and hopefully grow the practice through the new functionality provided by this new instrument, then it's a zero-sum no-brainer. It's vital to our practices that we stay at the forefront of technology. It's what our patients want and what trends indicate. However, it's imperative that we exercise caution about the kinds of technological investments we make. Case in point, digital refractors are pretty cool. They come with lots of bells and whistles and can make us faster in clinic. If our goal is to fly through as many vision exams as possible each day. On the other hand, digital refractors do nothing to drive additional revenues unless you're strictly talking about seeing more patients. But higher volume doesn't necessarily translate into more dollars per hour because it tends to erode the patient experience. So we have to think long and hard about whether a particular technology is a good investment. During the pandemic, our practice had the same financial performance in 2020 that it did in 2019, even though we saw fewer patients. So yes, invest in technology, but consider the pros and cons for your own particular situation before you invest. Now you know, it's not always necessary to have every shiny new accessory and upgrade that comes around. Think before you make the investment. Makes sense to me. Well, now we're down to the last segment of the episode. It's a bit scientific, but really interesting. The authors, Lindsay Sioko, an optometrist at Baltimore VA Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland, and Benjamin Wu, an optometrist in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, tag team the reading of their article on the emergence of longevity biotechnology in eye care basically strategies that are being explored to stop or reverse the effects of aging. You may think aging is what happens to an organism as time passes. 
That is chronological aging. Biological aging, on the other hand, is loss of the ability of an organism to recover from stresses and to maintain homeostasis. Therapies targeting the mechanisms behind biological aging could potentially treat or prevent many conditions such as Alzheimer's disease, heart disease and glaucoma. Recent research into aging has moved away from merely investigating and slowing the process of aging to exploring strategies with the ability to reverse age-related changes. Progress in this area appears to be accelerating rapidly. Most of these strategies revolve around addressing the hallmarks of aging. Scientists are also developing specific biomarkers of aging based on lab values and epigenetic aging clocks to aid in quantifying aging and in slowing or reversing it. Aging is the most common and greatest risk factor for most major diseases, especially those pertaining to the eye. Often ocular diseases are some of the first therapies investigated for new therapies given the impact of visual impairment on quality of life, the relative safety advantages and the variety of potential drug delivery options. Many readers may be aware, for instance, of the many genetic therapies being explored for inherited retinal diseases and other ophthalmologic disorders. Lux-Turner Spike Therapeutics was the first such agent, a directly administered genetic therapy to be approved by the FDA in 2017. Lesser known and newer interventions being investigated include epigenetic, senolytic and mitochondrial based therapies, all approaches that target hallmarks of aging. This article explores the coming evolution in longevity biotechnology and its application to ocular diseases. Specifically, it reviews trending strategies and provides examples of companies pursuing clinical research in each area. The term epigenetics refers to heritable but modifiable features of the genome that contribute to gene expression. Essentially, epigenetics can explain how the environment affects the development of an organism. For example, it is known that children born to mothers during periods of famine have increased susceptibility to psychiatric illness and obesity via epigenetic mechanisms. Recently, researchers have found that reprogramming of the epigenome can be used to rejuvenate cells. Shinya Yamanaka won a Nobel Prize in 2012 for his groundbreaking research published in 2006 in which he and his colleague described the transcription factors OCT4, SOX2, KLF4 and CMIC. These transcription factors, now known as Yamanaka factors, can cause mature somatic cells to revert into induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSC. It has recently been shown that these factors can also be used to rejuvenate somatic cells without completely turning them into iPSCs. This has been achieved in two ways, by limiting the amount of time cells are exposed to the factors or by using only a partial set of the factors. This technology has been delivered via an adeno-associated viral vector or AAV in several mouse models of glaucoma, optic nerve injury and normal aging. The specific AAV applied TET-OFF AAV2 uses tetracycline class drugs as an on-off switch to induce transcription for a controlled duration. Investigators reported in the December 2020 issue of Nature, Turning Back Time, 
that this treatment resulted in murine optic nerve axon regeneration and reversed vision loss. This is an, an unprecedented finding suggesting that aspects of ocular aging may be reversible while also giving hope to patients who have experienced vision loss due to glaucoma. Messenger RNA or mRNA technology can also be employed to introduce transcription factors. Turn Biotechnology is investigating the use of mRNA technology for epigenetic reprogramming. The company's proprietary technology, Epigenetic Reprogramming of Age, restores the useful functionality of targeted cells while maintaining cell type integrity. Potential targets include ocular surface disease, corneal disease, age-related macular degeneration, and glaucoma. TRN004 is in the in vivo preclinical stage of investigation for ocular surface disease. Although epigenetic therapy appears promising, it's too early to know if it can produce a fully rejuvenated phenotype. Senolytics are a small class of drugs being investigated to improve human health through the elimination of senescent cells. The accumulation of these cells is a hallmark of aging and results in disorder of tissue structure and function. These zombie cells, as they're sometimes known, secrete SASP, or senescent-associated secretory phenotype, components that result in inflammation and degradation of the surrounding environment. Ridding the body of these cells is seen as a potential method of reversing age-related decline. Recently, researchers at the Mayo Clinic reported that clearing senescent cells with senolytics not only slowed aging, but also partially reversed aspects of tissue dysfunction in mice, thereby extending their healthy lifespan. Unity Biotechnology is a company investigating the use of senolytics in ocular therapeutics. Investigators have reported that high levels of senescent cells are associated with ophthalmological disorders, such as AMD and diabetic macular edema. In preclinical models of diabetic retinopathy, the senolytic UBX1325 has demonstrated improvement in retinal vasculature and function. The molecule reportedly works by inhibiting another molecule, BCL-XL, which is highly expressed in diseased blood vessels during retinopathy and has been shown to engage pathways of cellular senescence. UBX1325 reduces abnormal blood vessel growth and improves retinal function and vascular leakage in preclinical models. It restores healthy vascularization and unlike anti-VEGF therapies, also improves avascular areas. Unity recently reported positive findings in its phase one trial, demonstrating improvements in best corrected visual acuity and central subfield thickness in a small group of patients previously non-responsive to anti-VEGF therapy. This seems promising given that this phase one trial was assessed at safety and dosing and not efficacy. Mitochondrial therapies are also being investigated for their cellular rejuvenation potential. Because mitochondria are the producers of energy in the cell, they are thought to play a large role in neurological diseases. In the eye, they're potential targets for treating disorders of the retina and optic nerve. Photobiomodulation, or low-level light therapy, is one example of this. It essentially improves mitochondrial function and currently is utilized in the treatment of meibomian gland dysfunction and under investigation for treatment of dry AMD. Additionally, a multitude of supplements that are thought to support mitochondrial function are also being explored. Popular examples include CoQ10 and NAD plus boosters. Large human trials have not been undertaken to establish these benefits 
of the supplements and recommendations to patients for mitochondrial support supplements are therefore not yet advisable. A few biotech companies are also working on mitochondrial-based therapies, including at least two in the ophthalmology space. MC16 by Mitochem Therapeutics is an example of a molecule designed to protect mitochondrial homeostasis, according to the company. In April, the FDA conferred orphan drug status on MC16 as a potential therapy for retinitis pigmentosa. And secondary indications to be explored include dry AMD and glaucoma. According to the company, MC16's protective mechanism is designed to be disease or gene mutation agnostic, with the unique potential to treat all forms of retinitis pigmentosa, regardless of genotype. Stealth Biotherapeutics is working on a peptide called Alamopride that reportedly binds to a component in the inner mitochondrial membrane and increases mitochondrial function through a variety of mechanisms. It's currently in phase two trials for treatment of AMD and labors hereditary optic neuropathy. A number of emerging technologies with the potential to rejuvenate ocular tissues and reverse age-related decline are being explored in preclinical and clinical investigations. The continued pursuit of these technologies is vital as they may have the potential to restore vision loss and improve quality of life for many of our patients. Fascinating, right? I know I'm going to keep an ear to the ground for any new developments in epigenetics, senolytics, and mitochondrial therapies. How about you? We made it to the end of another episode. Thanks so much for choosing to listen. If you really like the Mod Pod, tell your friends about it and make sure they subscribe. I'll be back next month with a brand new episode. If you'd like to comment or offer suggestions, our inbox awaits you. Just send an email to modernod at bmctoday.com. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, be well.